I'm wondering how many of you know the name Rudy Rudiker. Rudy grew up in a lower class family, third of 14, learned to love football from his father. So family gatherings centered around watching Notre Dame football because Rudy's father worshipped Notre Dame football. So naturally, Rudy worshipped Notre Dame football. Rudy was a terrible student in high school, but a promising athlete. In fact, during his senior year, he made more tackles than anyone else on the football team, which only made him all the more determined to play Notre Dame football. Here's the problem. He only weighed 165 pounds, and he was only five and a half feet tall. In addition, he suffered from dyslexia. So he had serious physical, academic, and financial limitations. In fact, it's no overstatement to say Rudy was undeserving of putting any hope in playing Notre Dame football. He just wasn't good enough. But you couldn't tell Rudy that. So after graduating high school, he enrolled at Holy Cross because he found out that if he got straight A's at Holy Cross, he could transfer to Notre Dame. So he worked hard, he studied hard, and he kept submitting applications, which semester after semester kept getting rejected. So one day he got accepted, so now he's on campus, but he's nowhere closer to playing Notre Dame football. But he applies to the scout team, which essentially is a motley crew of misfit toys that the varsity team beats up on every week during practice. But Rudy makes the scout team, and the coach notices him because he practiced, and he practiced. He persevered, and he persevered, and the rumor on the street was the coach was going to let him play. But unfortunately, that coach retired. So despite all his efforts, all his practicing, all his unwavering perseverance, the question remained, would Rudy play? Well, if you saw the movie, then you know November 8th, 1975, Rudy Rudiker suited up, played the last few downs of a game, and made the final tackle, which resulted in the crowd going crazy and his teammates carrying him off the field as a legend. Here's the connection. There's nothing in Rudy Rudiker that deserved that opportunity. He wasn't physically, academically, or even financially deserving of it. And he certainly wasn't guaranteed it. The new coach could have rightly said, no way. But he persevered. You could say he was continually asking, seeking, and knocking. But it was still dependent on the coach being gracious and merciful and saying to him, yes, Rudy, you can play. But when he did, Rudy's greatest dreams came true. No doubt he felt like he had died and gone to heaven when he stepped on that field. And can you even imagine the joy of being carried off of it? Such a glorious story of persistent perseverance that results in great joy and a transformed life. Rudy Rudiker, Notre Dame legend. 
Now let me connect the dots to the Sermon on the Mount. But while I do, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, page 812, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Title of my sermon this morning, Diligence Rewarded, Righteousness Required, Invitation Offered, Life Transformed. Because Jesus has been pounding us week after week in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus declares that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But this morning, he's got something new to say to us. Because after condemning us one last time for our utter sinfulness, Jesus is going to appeal to us to diligently persevere in seeking the kingdom of God. So if you would, follow along as I read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of God. And the prophets. Now, right off the bat, I want you to notice verse 12. Look at it again. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Why? Because this is the law and the prophets. So, verse 12 ends with the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and verse 12, to love others as you love yourself, is the fulfillment. Of the law and the prophets. Now flip back with me to chapter 5, verse 17. Look at what Jesus says. Chapter 5, verse 17, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, the law. And the prophets. So the law and the prophets, chapter 5, verse 17, and the law and the prophets, chapter 7, verse 12, serve as bookends for this entire section. 
where Jesus has been proving one thing, one thing, that our righteousness is not sufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because absolute perfection is required. Perfect righteousness. That's why Jesus says, chapter 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Instead, chapter 5, verse 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what has Jesus been doing this entire time? He's been showing us our sin. He's been showing us just how far short we fall from the divine standard of perfect righteousness, that our anger is sin, that our lust is deserving of eternal judgment, that divorce, white lies, retaliation against evil, and even hating your enemies is wrong. It's wicked, and it's worthy of eternal condemnation. Does Jesus stop there? No. Instead, he says the standard is moral perfection. Verse 48, you have to be perfect, including not living for the praise of men, not treasuring money, not being materialistic, and not worrying, not being anxious, not even about the essentials. This morning, not being judgmental and not being undiscerning. And if you fail in any one of these areas, even once, then you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. You're not welcomed into heaven. Why is that again? Because perfect righteousness is required. So let's start with A, the reality that righteousness is humble. Jesus says, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Now let me ask you a trick question. Does do not judge really mean do not judge? Because this verse has quickly become one of the favorites in our culture, hasn't it? I mean, it's far more popular these days than John 3.16 or Romans 8.28. In fact, if you ask an unbelieving friend, what does John 3.16 say? I bet he has no clue. But he'd be crystal clear that Christians are commanded to not judge. Boy, I wonder why they pick up on that little nugget of truth. So let me ask again, does do not judge really mean do not judge? Does it mean that we should never have discernment? Does it mean that we should never think about what's right or wrong? Or whether or not someone is doing something right or wrong? You know, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I heard this constant banging against the back of my house. Like a ball slamming against my siding over and over again. And I thought to myself, surely my boys are smarter than that. <laughs> Just being honest with you this morning, that's what I thought. So I walk out my back door and sure enough, here are my boys 
playing soccer in the backyard with the side of my house being one of the goals. So what did I say to them? I said, boys, stop kicking the ball. Now, did I mean stop kicking the soccer ball ever? Of course not. I meant stop kicking the soccer ball against the side of my house. So the command, do not judge, is not a command to not judge at all, but a command to not be judgmental. So do not judge in a judgmental kind of way, in a hypocritical kind of way. And that's obvious by the example we're given, isn't it? Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but somehow you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's this big, massive log in your own eye? What's the clearest evidence we have that Jesus is talking about judgmentalism? How about this statement? He says, you hypocrites. So what's the issue? It's not discernment. It's judgmentalism. It's judging someone in a hypocritical kind of way where you condemn their wayward actions while behaving wickedly yourself. Now, as soon as you hear that word hypocrite, you can't help but think about the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, just think about what Jesus says to them later in the book of Matthew. Matthew 23 says eight different things to them. I'll just highlight three. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law. So you focus on the little things, but you miss the big things. Namely, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead man's bones. Are you catching the intensity of what Jesus is saying? The issue isn't discernment, humbly seeing issues in a person's life and speaking truth into their situation. It's judgmentalism. It's being a person who has all sorts of sin issues going on in their own life of significance, right? That's the log, that's the sequoia tree of sin going on in your own life. And yet somehow, you sit there in judgment over others, instructing them on areas where they're wrong, dialing in on the little areas of their life where they need to make progress, where they need to move forward. That's the speck idea that Jesus is talking about. And you can feel it when it happens. 
can't you? You know, Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? A, righteousness is humble. So it's not hypocritical judgmentalism, and it's obvious, isn't it, that judgmentalism will be condemned. That's why Jesus says one man was justified, the humble man, while the other was not. He's condemned. So there's consequences for judgmentalism. Jesus says the same thing, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now certainly it's true that the way you treat others, that's how they'll treat you. But I don't think that's the heart of what Jesus is saying. Instead, he's talking about the judgment of God. So if you want to come down hard on somebody else's sin without mercy or grace or kindness... And that's how God is going to come down on you, without mercy or grace or kindness. But here's the difference. God's judgment is perfect. You will be judged because of your judgmentalism. You will be judged because of your hypocrisy. And the truth is we're all judgmental, aren't we? We're all hypocrites at one level or another. I mean, the Lord was so kind to me this past week just to show me my own hypocrisy. You can't study a passage like this without seeing your own hypocrisy all over the place in your life. I mean, there I am. I'm sitting at Jay's soccer game, and even though I almost know nothing about soccer, that's critical to the story. I know nothing about soccer. And yet suddenly... I'm a better referee than referee, (laughs) right? Suddenly I can see way better than he can see. He's close to the accident. I'm way far away. Suddenly I can see way better than he can see. And it's obvious in my heart that I make better decisions than he makes. I'm sure you can relate. How quick are you to judge the actions of others? How about when somebody buys something that you don't think is worth the money? How about when somebody in this church buys a new car? Maybe a fancy car. Or goes on vacation. Or heaven forbid, buys a hot tub. Are you seriously telling me you have no opinion on that? 
How about what somebody talks about? Or how they talk? Or how often they talk? Or the words they use? Or their discretion? Or their lack of discretion? Or their opinion? Or how about somebody else's sin? Suddenly you become aware that they struggle in one area. And it's an area where you don't struggle. Do you judge them for it? You see, here's what's going on. We're joyfully, willingly ignorant of ourselves while being totally arrogant about others. That's why Jesus gives us such clear instruction. Look at verse 5. He tells us, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Should Should we not judge at all? Should we not be discerning? Of course we should. Verse 5 makes that crystal clear. But the heart of it is being humble in our assessment so that we can be helpful in our instruction. Which means the best way to be helpful is to be humble. You know, it reminds me of one of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Resolution number eight, he said, and I quote, I am resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if somebody had been, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or the same failings as others. And that I will let the knowledge of their sin promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of confessing my own sins and my own misery to God. Now let me just connect the dots because you'd have absolutely no problem at all taking feedback from a guy like that or a lady like that who's humble, who's broken, who's contrite, and who's well aware of their own sinfulness before they ever raise their head to speak truth into your life. So again, a righteousness is humble. And in summary, every single one of us fails in this regard. Now on to be righteousness is discerning. Jesus says, verse six, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now exactly what does that mean? Well, helpful to know that dogs in Jesus' day were not cuddly pets with wagging tails and affectionate kisses. Nope, they were scavengers that roamed the streets and foraged for food. And pigs were not friendly farm animals raised to feed growing families. Nope, they were wild boars that were dangerous, violent, and scary, not to mention unlawful for Jewish people to eat. So when when Jesus puts these two animals together, He's giving us a picture of people who are savage, vicious, and ungodly, wicked, wild, and an abomination to the Lord. 
Very similar to what Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 2 when he speaks about the ungodly, saying the proverb is true, they're like a dog who returns to his own vomit, and a pig that after washing returns to wallow in the mud. Dogs and pigs represent wicked people. And what exactly are the pearls? Well, I would suggest they're the good news of the gospel. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs. So the pearls are that which is holy. That becomes even more clear in Matthew chapter 13 when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding a pearl of great price sells all that he has so that he can buy the pearl. What's the priceless pearl in the kingdom of God? It's the good news of the gospel. So Jesus is saying, do not share the gospel, the richest parts of spiritual truth, with people who are consistently vicious, irresponsible, ungrateful, and unappreciative. So just like pearls are rejected by pigs and only cause them to be all the more violent and dangerous, so too is the good news of the gospel before people who reject it. They will only become all the more hostile, recalcitrant, combative, argumentative, and hard to deal with. And the truth is we have examples of this all over the New Testament. Jesus did this with the Pharisees, Matthew 15, 14, saying, let them alone and abandon them because they're blind guides. So they're people who are leading other people astray. Paul does it in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, when he abandons his ministry to the Jews. Why does he do that? Well, because they opposed him and they became abusive. So he starts sharing the good news of the gospel, not with the Jews anymore, but with the Gentiles. Or Titus chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's instruction. Warn a divisive person once and then a second time. After that, he says, have nothing to do with him. Paul explains because this man is a warped man and sinful and is in himself self-condemned. Now before we move on, let me just quickly offer some applicational thoughts. For starters, not everyone that we share the good news of the gospel with is going to be receptive. We know that. But do we know that some will actually become violent? Jesus says, do not throw pearls before pigs lest they trample the pearls, the gospel underfoot and turn to attack you. Some might even get violent in response to your sharing. Jesus is telling us that so we're not surprised by it. If they hated him, they're gonna hate you as well. And don't forget, Jesus was crucified by the hands of angry men. I would put crucifixion in the category of violence. It's helpful to remember. Second, that doesn't mean that we should change the message. So if people are going to get violent, maybe we should just alter the message. No, we should not change the message. Pearls are what pearls are, meaning they're a priceless treasure whether the pigs realize it or not. So the message cannot change. Otherwise, we lose the good news of salvation. Third, this verse is saying more than just expect hostility when we share. Right? Jesus is calling for discernment 
to actually recognize that there are times in life when we should stop sharing the gospel with someone. So discernment to know all this person wants is to razz and ridicule and reject the message that I'm proclaiming so I'm not even gonna share it with them. I'm gonna shake the dust off my feet and I'm gonna move on. Which brings me to the last application. That doesn't mean we neglect sharing the good news of the gospel just because we're afraid. It's that Jesus is commanding us, A, to be humble, and B, to show discernment. So be careful in handling the glorious truths of the Bible, for they are holy, they are precious, and they must not be thrown around indiscriminately, but thoughtfully, carefully, responsibly, and strategically. Now, do we do this perfectly? Of course not. But that's the whole point, isn't it? I mean, just recognize where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount, because all we've experienced up to this point is one nonstop example after example about how we sin, how we fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's where we started, right? That our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So all we've done so far in the Sermon on the Mount is highlight just how sinful we really are. God's given us this standard of perfect righteousness, which highlights how we fall so terribly short. He's put up this plumb line, this straight edge of his holy law to highlight just how crooked we really are. It's so crystal clear at this point in the sermon that we are sinners who rightly deserve God's judgment. We rightly deserve God's wrath. We rightly deserve God's condemnation. Unless we own it. Unless we own it. Unless we own it and we cry out to God for mercy and grace and kindness. And the willingness to give us what at this point we're absolutely clear that we do not deserve. Now, if that feels abrupt to you, I completely understand. But it is abrupt. It's abrupt in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we transition one to five, do not be judgmental. And verse six, you need to be discerning to verse seven. Verse 7 is the turning point that we've been waiting for. It's the invitation we desperately need. It's the offer that we cannot live without. And the exclamation point of the entire sermon. And why is that? Because Jesus tells us to ask. That's what he says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Please notice, number two, the invitation being offered because Jesus is the one who's telling us to ask and to seek and to knock. So he's promising to give us the righteousness that is absolutely required in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
I mean, don't forget the problem, right? Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So here it is, verse 7, Jesus' promise to give us the righteousness required that we need to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's promising, notice, to give it to anyone who diligently pursues him by faith. Universal offer. He doesn't stop the Sermon on the Mount and say, hey, huddle up. I'm just going to talk to a few of you, just a few of you. You should ask, just you. He doesn't do that. He says to everyone who's listening, universal offer, ask, seek, knock. Look at it again. I don't think you're getting it. Look at what he says, verse 7. Ask, notice, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. And Jesus continues, because if you don't get it yet, then look at the next verse, verse 9. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be absolutely open. Do you see how that's a promise? That if you ask, you will receive. That if you seek, you will find. That if you knock, the door will be open. Is that clear? It's a promise. He couldn't be more clear. But be clear. He's not talking about money or miraculous healings, is he? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about sanctification. So asking to know him better. Seeking to comprehend his word in a deeper way, knocking on the door of insight and understanding with regard to saving grace. Don't you see? When we seek God for those things, there is no question about how he's going to respond or if he's going to respond. He promises that he will respond. But he can't respond unless you ask, unless you seek, unless you knock. So you have to do something. This is not let go and let God. Instead, you need to be persistent. You need to ask. You need to seek. And you need to knock. And the truth is, you need to keep asking and keep seeking, and keep knocking. There's persistent perseverance in these three verbs that really mean the same thing. Yet there's this increasing intensity, isn't there? This, this drive, this, this focus, this, this concentration. I would say this tenacity. If you will, it's just like Rudy Rudiger. There's absolutely no way he's going to take no for an answer. It's that kind of tenacious 
asking, seeking, and knocking. It's that kind of individual persistence, which also means nobody can do this for you. You have to do it yourselves. But can you even imagine B? A better example than highlighting earthly fathers. I mean, just look at the example, verse 9. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? The appeal here is to earthly fathers that if our sons ask for something they desperately need, we'll somehow turn around and give them something that is cruel and unkind and painful. My goodness. In my experience, only the opposite has been true. Now, I understand not everybody has had a good dad in their life, but Jesus is working off the general rule of thumb that even we as sinful, earthly, wicked dads, even as wicked as we are, we love to give good gifts to our kids, don't we? I know I remember asking my dad for a car once. That's a big ask. As a junior in college, I was starting a co-op the next semester. I needed a car to drive from campus to the company. And I didn't have one. And I didn't have the money to buy one. So I asked my dad if he could get me a car that would get me from point A to point B. I just needed a functional vehicle. I just needed it to run. Now, not only did he get me a car, he bought me a sports car. He bought me a two-door Mitsubishi Eclipse GS. It was awesome. (laughs) Just saying. I thought I was going to get a four-door Corsica, you know, for my aunt. I thought it was going to be, that's what I was expecting, a four-door functional grocery getter grandpa mobile. That's what I was totally expecting. But that's not what I got. Why? Because dads love to give good gifts to their kids. Well, if that's true, which it is, then how much greater is C, the guarantee of God's generosity to those who diligently seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I mean, just look at the argument. It's an argument from lesser to greater, verses 11 to 12. Jesus says, if you then who are, look, he's clear, you're evil. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, which you do, then how much more will your father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who diligently ask him. Jesus is absolutely guaranteeing the greatest gift that you could ever hope for or imagine, the best gift you could ever ask for, the most important, most impressive, most helpful, most essential gift, because it's the most needed gift you could ever ask for. And that's the righteousness of Christ. Because without it, there's absolutely no way that you're going to heaven when you die. This is what you need. This is what you have to have. Christ's righteousness. Now, just a few things before we move on. Number one, notice how the whole point of the illustration is not to highlight the quality of your asking. It's not about the quality of your asking, your seeking, or your knocking. It's not the quality of your faith that gets you to heaven. It's the object of your faith. The whole point in verses 9 to 11 is to highlight the glory of God's generosity. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You have to ask him. Number two, I want you to be crystal clear. 
that we don't deserve this gift at all. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to highlight our sin, which it does. So we're like Rudy Rudiker, not physically, academically, or financially deserving of it. We're spiritually weak, deaf, dumb, and poor. That's what the old hymn says. Only way we're allowed entrance into the kingdom of heaven is because God is merciful. Man, I want you to feel the weight of that. The only way that we go to heaven is because God is who God is. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is kind to say to sinners like you and me, you're in. You can play. Your entrance is guaranteed. It's secured. You're welcomed into the kingdom of God. Do you see how generous God is? Do you see how merciful he is? Do you see how loving he is? How gracious he is? Do you see how incredibly benevolent he is to sinners who only deserve judgment? And do you see how he's not only willing to offer salvation, but he's offering to sanctify us? Because he not only offers salvation in his son, but he offers the gift of his spirit to transform us. As long as we keep asking and seeking and knocking. So righteousness required, invitation offered, and now number three, life transformed. Look at how Jesus closes out our passage this morning. Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So here's the question. How do you actually know if you've received Christ's righteousness? I mean, you're convinced you're a sinner. The Sermon on the Mount has made that totally clear. Now you're diligently pursuing this righteousness that only comes by faith. But how do you actually know for sure, for certain, if you've received the gift of this righteousness? How can you be sure that your asking, your seeking, and your knocking has actually been answered? What in life is there to confirm it? Well, that's why Jesus gives us the golden rule. Because people who've been forgiven of their sin and given the gift of their spirit actually have power to put sin to death and walk in righteousness. And what does that look like? Well, simply stated, it looks like love. Just like Jesus says, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the great and first commandment. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is righteousness in action, both in your love for God and your love for others, but love is also be the fulfillment of the law. Paul makes that clear. Romans 13, he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. What is that? That's the Ten Commandments, that's the law. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
Now, what exactly does this love look like? Well, it looks like loving people in very real and in very practical ways. Just like you want them to love you in very real and in very practical ways. Now, what's so awesome here in the Sermon on the Mount is that it gets flipped over upside down and inside out, doesn't it? Meaning, all the ways that it was used, the Sermon on the Mount, by God to show us our sin, now it can be used to show us exactly what love is supposed to look like. For example, not only do you not get immediately angry with your brother or your sister in Christ, by the way, I'm just going to walk from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7 here, so you can flip and follow along if you want. But when you realize that your brother or your sister in Christ is angry with you, they have something against you, chapter 5, verse 24 says you immediately leave what you're doing and you go. What does love look like? It looks like being reconciled with your brother or your sister in Christ. Chapter 5, 27 to 30, you look at your brother and sister in Christ not with lust in your eyes, you stop doing that. But you look at them as people made in the image of God who rightly deserve your honor and your respect. Chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, we speak truth to one another rather than lies and falsehoods. 38 to 40, that we don't retaliate when wrongs are done, but we make them right. Chapter 6, verse 1, we don't practice our righteousness in front of one another in order to receive man's praise, but instead we work hard to live for an audience of one. Chapter 6, verse 19, we lay up treasures in heaven. We serve God and not money. We don't desire to be physically wealthy, but we desire to be spiritually rich in good works. We strive to be generous. We strive to share with anyone among us who has need. Boy, that sounds like Acts chapter 2. That's right. The church, they gave of all that they had to make sure that there was not a single person among them who had anything in need. How would you summarize that kind of action? I know, I'd call that love. That's love. Loving one another in real and practical ways. Being generous, sharing with anyone who has need. Chapter 6, verse 25. We're not anxious or worried, but seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, trusting that all that we need will be provided by his good and perfect timing. Or as we saw this morning, what does love look like? Love looks like not being judgmental. Not noticing the speck in your eye. Even though I have this sequoia tree of sin in my own eye. It's not judgmental. It's humble. Well aware of my own sinfulness. And as a humble person, happy to help you along the way. That we both would go to heaven when we die. It's not judgmentalism. It's humility. It's not being foolish, but being discerning. It's recognizing in all these things that we never stop being diligent to seek and to ask and to knock. Because none of these qualities are ours in and of ourselves but come from God who graciously, generously gives us all that we need. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
If you do, then the closing question for you is obvious. Are you truly fulfilling the golden rule in your life? In other words, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? And is that love evident? Is it obvious to a watching world? Is it increasing? Not perfectly, but progressively. Are you making real strides, real effort, real progress in loving the people in this church? If so, then praise God. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking that we might all excel still more in our love for others. But if it's not, meaning there's evident and obvious sin in your life, there's anger, you can call that whatever you want, frustration, irritation, okay. How about we just call it what the Bible calls it? Anger. Lust, well, I struggle a bit. Okay, with what? Lust. Pride. Judgmentalism. Dishonesty. Broken relationships. Unresolved tensions, fear of man, anxiety and worry. Materialism. Are those the things that are evident and obvious in your life? Summarized as not loving the Lord your God, not loving your neighbor as yourself, the people of God. I know these are hard truths, but I appeal to you to be honest with yourself. If Christ's righteousness has not actually become your righteousness, then you will see it. It will be evident and obvious as a lack of love in very real and practical ways. Because those who have received Christ's righteousness are new creatures in Christ, transformed by His grace, by His Spirit, and become people who love the Lord their God and love people in practical ways. So if that's not true, then Christ's righteousness has not become your righteousness. So what should you do? You should ask. And you should seek. And you should knock. And you should plead with God to be merciful to you a sinner. And you should know that he promises to all who ask, it's given. To all who seek, they find. And to all who knock, the door will be opened. Because God is a gracious God kind and merciful and gracious.
to all those who diligently seek him. May we be a people who are known for our love and excel still more because we never stop asking or seeking or knocking. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, the Sermon on the Mount has been hard. It's been true, and it's been good, but it's been hard. Father, I pray that we would allow it to have its good effect on our minds and in our hearts. I pray that the straight edge of the law would show us just how crooked we are. I pray that we would see just how sinful we really are. But I also pray that we would see just how gracious and kind and generous God has been to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That for all those who ask, it will be given. To all those who seek, they will find. And to every single one who knocks, the door will be opened. May we ask and seek and knock, and may we never stop asking and seeking and knocking. Father, we're grateful for salvation. We're grateful for sanctification. We're grateful for who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name that you might receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.